Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin. And I'm Will Lentz. And we are your hosts. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to have Michelle Hope here to talk all about um, intersectionality, reproductive justice, expanding uh, and looking at root causes of the Black Lives Matter movement and how to move forward in the future. Um, Yeah, but before we get into that uh, and and our amazing conversation, I I did just want to touch on everything that's going on in the world um, and the revolution that is currently taking place and our our place within that. Um, so I know, Will, you and I have had a lot of conversations and we, we ended up taking two weeks off um, to really listen and learn. And I have to say, personally, in the last two plus weeks, I have learned an incredible amount of information, a shocking amount of information, um, while also unlearning, you know, a lot of the racist, white supremacist, historical knowledge that I have and the upbringing that I was a part of. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, you know, it's unfortunate that it's taken stuff like this for us to finally, you know, see a lot of this stuff. But that, that's that been one of the more shocking things was like, oh, yeah, right, of course. Of course, all the stuff that we learned in uh, elementary school skipped over uh, the cruelties of slavery beyond just being like, it was a thing that happened. Um, sure. So, yeah, I it's tough. Two weeks isn't enough for us to learn everything, but it's important that we start somewhere, right? Right. Uh, and, it, and it does feel like a start and... And, you know, particularly for me, beginning this podcast, we've gone through several iterations of kind of our mission statement and and what we are trying to accomplish. And especially within these last couple of weeks, we are really shifting the focus from what I realized was such a white myopic viewpoint. And, you know, from the beginning of, of hosting this, I talk about how I really came from this like Pollyanna, like virginous for lack of a better word, naive white female perspective. Um, and that my eyes have been tremendously opened over the last year and a half with the amount, amazing amount of guests that we've had uh, in, in terms of like the sexual liberation space, uh, gender expression, you know, sexuality um, and how that manifests for a, a bunch of different people. And while we have had a little bit of diversity, I understand that we haven't had enough and it's really been, you know, the white perspective story that that we've been telling. And while that is also valid, I am committed to bringing in, uh, you know, more black and indigenous and people of color to to share their experiences and 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 give a more holistic view of like what what are different people, particularly within the United States? How are they experiencing? How are they experiencing sexuality? How are they experiencing, you know, gender divides and oppression? Um and liberation and and what are what are the calls for different communities asking for um yeah and so i i just want to i just want to put that out there uh so that we can hold ourselves accountable and also our listeners can hold ourselves accountable as well um and this first interview is is just one of many in that direction 
So uh, I, I hope you enjoy. Michelle Hope is incredibly qualified. You'll hear all of her amazing um, qualifications and, and accomplishments that she's she's done uh, once we start the interview. But yes, thank you for taking your time. And, and thanks again so much to Michelle Hope for coming on twice because uh, we did have audio issues the first time. So enjoy. Yay! Welcome to Finding My Yum. I'm so excited today. We have Michelle Hope, who is a dedicated sexologist, educator, and social justice activist and author with a master's degree in human development and extensive postgraduate focus on human sexuality. She is a veteran speaker who has over 15 years of experience delivering impactful information lectures and training across the nation. Uh, I'm so like thrilled to have you here. I can't tell you how excited I am that you took some time um this is actually our second recording so I'm even more grateful that you are willing to take even extra time to um revisit what we had talked about uh but here today we're going to talk about um activism and sex education and especially with the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening and revolution that we are currently in um how we can expand that conversation uh to include all peoples Uh, which I think is happening, right? Yeah, I think, you know, today's decision by SCOTUS um, to include in the uh, 1967 civil rights idea that you cannot be discriminated at a job based on um, race, it now, after today, is expanding to not only sexual orientation, but also gender um, identity. So it protects LGBTQ, all the letters, LGBTQ, GNC, which stands for gender nonconforming. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, a step in the right direction. I think there's quite a bit more work to be done. Sure. I think that while we are all taking to the streets to protest Black Lives Matter, we need to be sure that we do not become siloed in this idea that it's only, um, that it's only, African-Americans or black men that are, are struggling with these inequities, but it's also all people. And it's really important that, um, you know, we address all of this. And I think a great way to address it is in education. Hey everyone, this is Jerry here. Uh, We did have a little bit of audio issues, so we're just switching to a different track. Uh, So we're just going to pick up exactly where we left off, uh, just so that you know about the different audio quality. Enjoy. Um, so <laughs> if we could just take it back one more time about the, cause it, it's still, and I don't want to miss the mark of, of what, what is being highlighted in the media and the videos that are continuously coming out that are, that are keep steering the conversation towards black cis men. Well, I mean, um, so when, when we think about BLM, Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement, it was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer. Now, we saw that that was a monstrosity and it was terrible. And I think that every time we turn on the TV, it's just consistently happening again that we're seeing black men being brutalized uh, and terrorized by police with the use of excessive force and and police are supposed to be there to protect and serve not to terrorize communities so i think that's oftentimes why we immediately glo- go to black men when we think about blm now mind you i am not a member of blm i did not found i was not a founding member i am not a member 
It's just optically, we are so often bombarded with images in the media that show black men being brutalized. And it, I think it, it gets clicks. It gets, it, it kind of is something that we've seen. But what is so disgusting about this to me is when you think about um, how long this has been going on, right? It, it's, it's this idea that, you know, Rodney King happened in 1992. And you know, honey, I don't even know if you were alive then, but the idea is that, <laughs> and I think that that's in, I think that's important when you see who's leading this yes. movement, right? Yes. For me, this is something I've been seeing my whole entire life. Um, and then my work in reproductive justice, like look up Dr. Sims, right? The next time you take a, and, and then you start to see what happened to black slave women for us to be able to have gynecology and obstetricians. Uh, every time you pop your, your morning after pill, look up Margaret Sanger. Know where this came from. Because birth control pills were not designed for women to be liberated. They were designed to create a cleansing of sorts of certain individuals who Margaret Sanger felt as though were not were not adequately prepared to bring more children into the world. So if we were to start peeling back layers of the systemic injustices and the systemic racism that people of color have experienced, and I'm not just speaking black people, I'm speaking people of color, but if we wanna stay in this realm of black people, um, black women have, you know, really, We've definitely, we've definitely taken a few knocks and oftentimes those are not discussed. And so in terms of, I'd love to dive more into interse intersectionality um, and, and, and what that actually looks like and especially moving forward in, in ways that we can, we can impact those communities and we can make futures better for black women, black indigenous people of color. Um, what are those intersectionalities? And, 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 and what, I guess I'm wondering like how, from your point of view, you know, how we can center the conversation. I know sexuality is, is, you know, at the core, I think of, of a lot of what you talk about and, and I certainly agree. And so, you know, how, how does sexuality kind of, tie everything tie everybody together and and move us into a space where we can start to have actionable steps of this is how we can impact communities black women uh ch children um such like that well i think what we have to remember is that when we look at sexuality as holistic right we we must remember it's not a genital act it's not about the genitals it encompasses the biology the psychology, the sociology, and the spiritual variables that make us who we are as people, further affecting our interpersonal relationships, right? As a black queer woman, I cannot separate my blackness from my queerness, from my womanness. It's just not a thing. So, so we cannot approach any of these issues as a 
Black Lives Matter is about black men. It has to be holistic. Um, and, and that idea of holism is um, kind of best defined when you look at sexuality in circles. So there are things that talk about the circles of sexuality and, and what, that looks at, what that looks at is how it encompasses all aspects of who we are, right? Attitudes and values, feelings, um, expressiveness, and it's in and it's influenced by our family, our culture, our religious and spirituality ideas, laws, um, our professions, and the institutions by which we live in confinement of whether that's city, state, whatever, right? Um, and it and it kind of has this idea of like what is sensuality, and sensuality involves our awareness. Um, and acceptance and enjoyment of ourselves and others. Then you have like intimacy. And intimacy is not necessarily about sex, the physical act. It's about closeness, right? And, and to the degree which we express the need for closeness and our ability to receive and reciprocate uh, closeness. It's about our emotions, right? And then you think about your sexual identity. And what does that mean, right? Um, it, your biological gender may be vastly different than your gender identity, which is how you express your identity, uh, your gender, or how you um, come to understand your gender internally. It also it talks about your sexual orientation. That's kind of like, what is your sexual identity? And then you start to think about your uh, sexual health and reproductive health. And that's, again, you know, your sexual behavior, your anatomy, the physiology, your reproductive health system, um, sexually transmitted diseases and, and, and infections and really understanding that. And then there's this idea of sexualization, right? And on one side of sexualization is simple flirting. Maybe you send a sext, a little emoji eggplant and little water droplets <laughs> but on the other side of that spectrum is sexual violence and so this is 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 this spectrum and you have to kind of really you cannot look at sexuality as black and white because it's not it is a spectrum a gradient of sorts on all of these various issues sensuality intimacy sexual identity sexualization and your reproductive health so when we start to think about well how do we center i don't necessarily know if it's Oh, you can center black women or, oh, no, we need to center sexuality as an intersection of who we are as people. And when you start to think about what intersectionality is, I'm not sure how many of your listeners deeply understand that intersectionality is the nature of social categorization, such as your race, your class, your gender, and, and how these are applied to each individual group. Um, and, and, and how they overlap. And then when we think about intersection, intersectionality in regards to oppression, you can be, as I just stated, a black queer woman and be, uh, you know, experience marginalization because you're queer, because you're black and because you're a woman. So the more, the, the more places you stand in the center of intersectionality, the more places you can experience oppression. I would highly recommend to you and your listeners to check out Kimberly Crenshaw um, because she is kind of the mother of intersectionality and coined the term. She's an attorney. And it, it can really help you understand when you think about intersectionality, think about an intersection. 
And, and if you're standing in the middle of an intersection, you can be hit by a car from many different directions. And if you're in the middle of that intersection and each one of those directions represent a varying degree of your identity, that kind of can start to give you a visual picture of what intersectionality looks like. Sorry, I'm just gonna, there we go. Um, yes, that's a great visual and I, I wrote that down and we will we will absolutely put that in the um, the show notes as well as a, as a reference of um, uh, where people can go and get more information. Uh, so this, this idea of sexuality as well, I mean, as a continuum, and I think in, in, in the work that I've done for this podcast over the last year and a half, like that's become very clear to me that like, I really feel, and you know, the, honestly, the first time we talked, I had so many realizations that are horrifying and, and, and as I talk to other white people like me who are having this awakening right now, um, it, you know, most of the work that I've done has been regarding white people, although I didn't even realize that. Right. Like most of my revelations about, um, you know, sexu- sexuality and and gender expression and ha- ha- has been in the white sphere. And so there's a lot that I, I realize I don't. I don't know and I'm continuing to learn but from from what I have experienced in my personal life and from interviews is is that in general like at least white people like we are taught and I think this is predominant of like we're supposed to sever our intellectual side from our body and that those two things operate you know differently and we can allow just our brain to be operating for the majority of of the time and instead of incorporating as a whole person especially as a female what I felt is like we're supposed to sever um and so I I don't know if that resonates with you at all or if if that is sort of in conjunction with what you're talking about but um yeah I guess I'm wondering like especially when it comes to what we're talking about here and with this revolution moving on, you know, what, what do you think are like some of the first action steps that can be, can be taken? I mean, we, we, we had like this weekend were trans like protests that were going, you know, um, so aiding awareness and, um, bringing the conversation of trans rights of LGBTQIA to the forefront, um, but how do, what are what are like the first things that like communities, marginalized communities and intersectional communities like can really use in order to move forward? Like how and I don't know if you have this answer, but it may be some ideas. Well, well I think for it's not I mean, com- marginalized communities, we've been moving right sure. right now. What we what we are hoping for is that non-marginalized communities, white communities, will start to do the work that we've been asking them to do for a very long time, which is educate yourself. I think the first step is acknowledging, like, one, I don't know shit, um, and saying, well, fuck, I haven't done any work because I haven't needed to. This hasn't really impacted me. And while I love to see all the marches happening, that is just the tip of the iceberg. That is the pebble 
of the of the glacier that is. Um, it's time to start reading books. It's time to start having hard conversations uh, with fellow white people. Like it is not the job of marginalized communities to continue to educate white people because guess what? We've written the books. We've done yeah. the seminars. We've done the lectures. People just haven't wanted to listen. And even if they were listening and in the backs of their minds, they're like, ooh, that's wrong. There's been no action. So, it, you know, it's time for people to take action. And while, yes, this is an overwhelming amount of information and um, realities that white people have to process, welcome to the party, people. Welcome to the party. Is this going to be comfortable? No, it's going to be really shitty. But growth is uncomfortable. And once you reach a point of discomfort, you know you're in a space of growth. So I encourage people to lean in and listen. Um, lean in and do like an inventory of when you've been discriminated against and you probably won't have very many instances. But then on the backside of that, I want you to lean into when you may have discriminated against someone else. And that doesn't mean you said anything out loud. Doesn't mean you clutched your purse or crossed the street. Maybe it was just a thought and you need to just start processing those thoughts. Additionally, accept that white privilege is real and that you have benefited from it. Um, you know, this is not, and then you have to accept, this is not something that's gonna be solved or come to a resolution in the next three weeks, three months, three years, or 30 years. There is a possibility that this will take lifetimes, and that is a part of what it is. Uh, it's not necessarily okay, but understanding that it's, you're not gonna have all the answers, just like I don't have all the answers. You just gotta do what you can do in whatever ways that is. I also encourage people who have children, educate them early and often to what, like injustices are in a in a in a racial space what injustices are in the space of sexuality or homophobia transphobia it's really about education and educating yourself totally um so as far as um you know just what we can talk about here um and you know like Re racial reproductive justice um, and reproductive justice in general. Uh, I guess I would love to just touch on that particularly as well, because I think something that struck me in our last conversation was this idea that, you know, self-care and um, some of a lot of the aspects that I, you know, pride that I have access to just aren't that's a part of privilege is like even being able to talk about self-care and like mental care um, and and even the resources like if I were to have children or access to care is something that is a privilege that is not for everybody in this country. Um, and I don't think the depth of that is really understood or even what what that means. And if you can elaborate, I would I would love to listen. Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, you have to understand what reproductive justice is and where it comes from, right? So, mm -hmm. um, Sister Song, uh, which is a 
a black-led organization. It was, it was created by black women. Sister Song defines reproductive justice as the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we do have in a safe and sustainable community, which we know is not realized at this point. Um, and understanding that is is really important, right? It, it doesn't say it's a women a woman's right. So reproductive justice is not a woman's issue. It's a person's issue. Um, so I would urge all of your listeners to check out Sister Song um, and, and get some kind of knowledge base there. But it impacts every part of your life. You know, reproductive justice can connect to the wage gap because if you don't make enough money based on your race or based on your sexuality or, or excuse me, your, your sexual assignment at birth, i.e. being a woman, um, that doesn't provide you the resources to raise a child you may have in a safe and sustainable community if you are living in a public housing and it's a dangerous or you're living in a neighborhood because that's what you can afford and it's a crappy neighborhood and I don't just mean because of violent crime right now I'm I'm speaking in in a broad stroke around food deserts uh environmental pollution these are all things and areas that by the definition of what reproductive justice is if you live in an environment that does not have healthy eating options that's not a safe and sustainable community to raise children if you don't have adequate education in your communities that is not a safe and sustainable environment to raise children if you live in a space where you have pollutants because there is a factory nearby that is not a safe and sustainable community to raise children and i think a lot of people do not understand the depths at which reproductive justice permeates every aspect of our life and it's not just a black lives matter movement against police and the police's use of excessive force it has to go all the way down to reproductive justice we need safe and sustainable communities to raise children period and that's not just black people um however most of the individuals we're seeing in communities that are not safe and sustainable are black communities, are communities of color. And that's something we have to continue to, to talk about. And, and here's the issue. Here's the deal. Not every not one person can do all things. Right. So when I come into this space of activism and I engage with BLM marches or I engage with rallies that are that are rooted in Black Lives Matter, I show up as who I am, a reproductive justice activist. Now, to me, that falls under the umbrella of BLM, right? Um, I just choose to know my lane. And my lane is, is sexuality, the intersections of race and sexuality, and reproductive justice. So I, I, so everybody, wherever you're at, even if you're like, let's say you work in a digital space and you're like a social media lead, right? You can find ways to impact or help the BLM movement 
by being more mindful of the content that you create, mm -hmm. being more mindful of the stories you're telling through the digital platforms you're using, right? If you're a writer, same thing. If you are someone who is in HR, uh, you know, look into what are your, um, like, what are your options for uh, parental leave? Are those equitable? Is it the same for men as it is women? Because when we say women can get so many weeks off for, for pregnancy, labor, delivery, and, and be on maternity leave, what does paternity leave look like at your job? And, and start having those conversations because if we continue to say that maternity leave is one thing for women and men don't need paternity leave, that continues to tell us that women do not belong in the workforce, rather a kitchen. So we have to make these things equitable. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I just want to clarify one thing. When you said food desert, was that specifically relating to having access to healthy food? Absolutely. Options? Absolutely. You know, there are a lot of, I lived in Harlem and now there's a Whole Foods in Harlem. But prior to that, there's been a long fight in communities like Harlem to find or to, to have grocery stores that provide quality, you know, um, fresh fruit. The, sometimes you'd have to walk blocks upon blocks upon blocks to get a grocery store because all that was around are bodegas and the bodegas don't have fresh fruit in them, but they have beer. What message are we sending to that community? So when you talk about um, like your lane, that you're in when you're going out into marches what and maybe we already touched on it but but what is the the most predominant message and 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 in that lane like what is what are you moving forward um and what what is like the biggest point in order to like to try to disseminate in this in this moment, like through that lane and 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 through the 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 way that you're advocating, um, what what does that look like? Well, for me, I think it's that sexuality is a part of your everyday life. My saying from the womb to the tomb, sexuality is a part of your everyday life. So even when I'm marching or I'm engaging in these social justice activisms rooted in BLM, I will always say the same thing. Sexuality, this is a sexuality issue as well. This isn't just police brutality. Because if we talked about that, we could talk about, you know, why aren't we marching in the streets for pregnant women who are incarcerated to not be shackled? Do you see what I'm, does that make sense? Yeah. It, it's all connected. Pregnant women should not be shackled. <laughs> that makes no sense to me. Um, that's police brutality to me. That is, it, it just doesn't end. It doesn't, if you look at education, approximately 16% of all students across the United States are African American in schools. Black girls make up one third of the arrests. Why? That makes no sense to me. But again, you have the race aspect. You have the gender aspect. Something is something's off. 
So we cannot just address one thing. Right? Right. Um, so I just am always trying to, in these spaces, remind people that race and sexuality, there's, you cannot separate them. Right. And, and I do think it's, it, it's sad because it, not that Breonna Taylor was not uh, at the forefront, but it did feel like th- she is the second name. And I think we talked about this last time of, of you know, uh, and I don't know if that voice is getting stronger and I don't know, like with the trans march, at least that was the focus of, of this weekend, particularly in Los Angeles where I, I you know, I was marching um, and what I experienced, but, but that, that, you know, saying, especially, you know, the, 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 the trans women that were, were, were just killed, uh, murdered as well in the, in the last week that people don't know their names. Um, and just like giving more voice to other people, other genders, other, you know, expressions within this movement and, and, and allowing their faces to also be just as important, um, you know, as as George Floyd and as all of the men who unjustly were murdered as well. Um, but but just incorporating more into the conversation earnestly of they all deserve the same amount of space. Yes, uh, they, they they do all deserve the same amount of space. And quite frankly, we cannot move forward until we acknowledge all of these lives lost, um, you know, most recently, there was a Florida protester, Toyin um, Salau, I may be pronouncing that name wrong, who was on the forefront of marching, talking about Black Lives Matter, talking about Black Trans Lives Matter, was recently found dead. Um, and it is, in, 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 as I hear you breathe, and as we should breathe, it is heartbreaking um, to, to think that that person's name will come and go. Um, you know, the idea, Sandra Bland, why were we not up in arms over Sandra Bland? Um, why Tatiana Jeffer- Jefferson? Again, it seems as though black women and, and black trans folk become asterisks and, and afterthoughts. And I can I can understand that the visibility is is shining on black men because again we have video of that. It doesn't mean that these people's lives were any less important or that their erasure doesn't impact the movement because we cannot erase somebody's existence because it doesn't fit the narrative that is viral right now. We have to continue to say her name. We have to continue to say their names. We have to continue to peel back layers and find areas in which we all can do better. And that takes time and it takes collaboration and we have to stop siloing and we have to find a way to do more collective impact work where you know, organizations that specialize in reentry programs are partnering with organizations like Planned Parenthood, um, where organizations that fight police brutality are p- 
partnering with maternal care programs to discuss what pregnancy during incarceration looks like. These are all interconnected. Therefore, our organizations need to be interconnected as well. Yeah, I think um, in terms of intersectionality as well, the idea, well, the idea of defunding the police and moving funds to support the communities, but also then having those organizations and and community structures work together in a way that is, you know, supportive on multiple levels with communication makes just plain sense. <laughs> like, I just feel like it's just, it, it just makes, it just makes sense. Um, but I haven't actually heard it articulated in that way. And, and I think that that's, that's really powerful and, and, and just makes sense. It, yeah. It's, but see, here's the thing. It makes sense, but when you get down to the logistics, it becomes more of a challenge, which is why I was saying we have to recognize that this might not be fixed in three weeks, three months, three years. This will take time and effort, and there's there's a lot of processes that have to go, go into it. You know, people are saying defund the police. Great. It's a great hashtag. It, it sells. Right. It's clickbait. Um, for, for wherever you stand on the defund the police side or no, that's crazy. Um, I don't know if it's defund, it might be augment, <laughs> it might be shift, it, it, but to defund, I have friends who are police officers, and what I feel like some people are failing to remember as they're screaming, defund the police, you know, disband the police, does that mean we defund and disband special victims units as well? Mm -hmm. Do we defund and disband child abuse? and uh, uh, per, like child welfare police. And I hear people say, oh, well, we just need to put more social workers in. Some of these situations in intimate partner terrorism, domestic violence, sexual assault, and really when it comes to like intimate partner violence, some of these can be very dangerous situations. So if we get a call, we just send in social workers who may be unprepared to go into a hostile or violent situation. There's just so many things that I think people want a quick solve to, and there's not a quick solve. It's not, okay, we've defunded the police, and everything's going to be fine. Because statistically, if you look at the areas in which the police are called most often, they're communities of color that are crippled with crime. And why are they crippled with crime? Because they have higher rates of poverty, and people are desperate. And again, we have to think about this holistically. Everything is interconnected, right? It, it, it just cannot be, it cannot be an easy, it's not going to be an easy solve. It's not just defund the police. Right. I would just like to dive a little bit deeper into that um, because I know I've encountered a lot of people who talk about crime specifically violent crime you know within that use the prevalence of crime within low-income communities within communities of color as evidence against them um and and i i don't know if you can speak to this at all uh but i know that the numbers don't support it and it it it, it is really an economic 
issue that we're talking about as opposed to, you know, the white supremacist um, framework of of marginalizing and, and categorizing people in a particular way. Um, so I, I just wanted to touch on that if if you'd be willing just a little bit because I, I, I feel like that can just get taken out of context and, and it just came up. So Well, I think um, that at the end of the day, research concludes. I, I mean, education is, you know, a crime prevention strategy, right? So according to statistics, um, what some have found, and I will send you the link so you can have the data, um, states with higher levels of education attainment also have crime rates lower than national averages. So they go hand in hand. States with higher college enrollment rates experience lower victim crimes than states with lower college enrollment rates. This is incredibly important because education is key. But if we continue to fund education the way education has been funded historically through property taxes... Right. Places that have lower income levels have lower property taxes and people do not own property. So when people talk about why are you tearing up your own communities? We don't own them. We don't own them. So there is a direct connection there. Right. And then when you think about education, because I, I, I worked in education for 15 plus years. If you don't have food on the table at home, you're not going to be able to perform in school the same way. If it is not safe for you to walk to and from school, you will not perform the same way. If you are worried about being stopped and frisked on your way to school, or you are worried that uh, your brother, your father, your uncle, your mother could be stopped by police and end up in jail or worse off dead, you will not be able to perform in school. So again, there is a direct connection between all of these things. Um, and, and that to me, again, proves that this is going to take much longer than I think most of us have envisioned in our minds at this point. Now, if you talk to people who have worked in these spaces for some time, you will, they'll be able to tell you, oh, well, this is going to take a while. And here's what we need. And here's what. So there's, a, there's something called the, the theory of systems change, right? And systems change uh, theory is something we talk about in nonprofit work. Um, and what it basically speaks to is not to look at the the thing the flashpoint the black men being brutalized by police rather it seeks to address the root causes of this issue which are often embedded in networks of cause and effect so it's not okay we're marching because george floyd uh, and we are marching because george floyd was was murdered on tape But what are all the reasons around that that allowed that to happen? Right? What are the reasons that allowed that to happen? What are the systems that are currently in place 
making these types of videos sustainable. That's, that's what we have to look at. We, we can't just look at the one thing. We have to look at all the things around them that keep these things in place. There are institutions that benefit off the status quo. How do we dismantle that? How do we get to that? So that's what I mean when I talk about that bigger picture. Mm -hmm. It's not just police are brutalizing black men in the communities and they're killing us. Okay. Well, I just talked about how education and crime go hand in hand. And then we talked about, well, let's say your, your mother was incarcerated during pregnancy and was shackled. We also know science tells us that trauma can be passed down through genetic coding. And I say this to everybody when I teach parenting classes, if I'm doing a prenatal class, think about it like this. If you are pregnant with a girl, if the fetus is a girl, you are carrying the genetic coding for your grandchildren because women or girls are born with all of their ovaries. So now I'm taking on, I'm a woman who's been incarcerated for whatever reason, I'm shackled during my pregnancy. That stress, that trauma, my body is taking on is now going to be imprinted in the genetic coding of my grandchildren. That is big. That is huge. And I don't think we're making these connections. We're not making the connections between sexuality and social justice. While I've laid out many examples of this, it, it seems to continue to not resonate with people because when I say to them, you do realize that sexuality is a, is a, is a root cause of social justice. They're like, no, I don't, I don't get it. And then when I start to lay it out for them, they're like, holy shit. I never thought about it like that. So it's, 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 this, is, this is not, a, oh, I spent my whole summer working on this. No, this is lifetime. Right. This is what you do for a lifetime. Okay. And it can be exhausting. And it can be tiring. And even for myself, you ask about self-care and how that is a privilege. I myself, I, I find myself, I acknowledge I am privileged. I am privileged because of the level of education. I am privileged uh, because of my work experience. I am privileged uh, because of where I live. Um, I am privileged because of how I look. You know, it does not mean that self-care is easy for me. Because even in moments of trying to do self-care, there is a guilt that washes over me that I should be doing more. I should be marching harder. I should be screaming louder. I should be posting more regularly. Um, because I have the privilege to do these things. So it, it can really take a toll mentally on people. And then, you know, for me, self-care right now is just acknowledging I cannot do all things. I cannot be on all the time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and I'm very passionate about it. I'm very passionate about my work. Um, so it just, it can be daunting and draining. But it is important for me to check in and sometimes check out. Uh, sure. to, to be able to care for myself. Absolutely. Um, and I would venture to say you're way more effective when you're rested and you feel better, you know? 
Um, I I think the last part I would like to discuss just because in in the last interview it was so powerful was, uh, and I'm not quite sure how to get into this, but this idea that that the and 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 part of me I'm going to separate these movements just a little bit, but like the black male focus of the BLM and what's going on right now that part of the movement although I would I would reckon that that it, there is some movement forward but that like that there is the a resistance into incorporating LGBTQIA people um and that there is a a a homophobia and uh that's prevalent and and that I think from what I I've talked to you about is is different than in white communities and how we have internalized homophobia um on on massive scales right um and so I would just like to talk touch on that because um I I, I just think it's 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 important to to the conversation of like why it might be more difficult and it is more difficult to merge these and to expand this conversation um okay so I last time we spoke you know I was talking to you about how I've had conversations with cisgendered heteronormative black men about the reluctancy to really speak out and speak on behalf of the LGBTQ community um and you know oftentimes what I get back is um that a part of the reason and again, this is their, this is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing sure, sure. many conversations, yeah. is that they identify homosexuality with the brutalization of black male slaves being sexually assaulted and sodomized during, um, during slavery times. So I have also heard from many cisgendered heteronormative men that homosexuality was not something that took place in Africa. Rather, it was a European thing and that it's a white thing and that's what white people do. But I think that that speaks to understanding sexuality and sexual desire as a whole in black communities where we oftentimes assume that things that might not be cookie cutter, heteronormative as outliers in sexual desire or, or sexual practices, those are white things. Uh, mm. and, and I think that that is what um, starts to provide a discomfort. I've done a lot of trainings, diversity and inclusion trainings around like how to be a better ally to LGBTQ communities in organizations of color. And oftentimes I have heard men of color say things like you're marginalizing the black male experience uh, for the rights of LGBTQ. And, and I think that there's not a separation. Again, if we really understood it, stood intersectionality, we might be more accepting. I do think that there is a lot about homosexuality in black communities that is rooted in the church. And the irony of all of this to me is that, you know, this is all very patriarchal. 
and right, right. which is also rooted in white supremacy. So it's like we have right. taken on these ideas of the oppressor and we are spewing them back out onto our own communities. Um, and it's not just LGBTQ, it's, it's respectability politics. Black women should not be so sexually liberated. And I've, oh gosh, I mean, I've heard so many, the crazy things I've heard in trainings I've given. Um, <laughs> like, you know, it, homosexuality is the, the demasculinization of the black man to ruin the black family. And this is just the root cause of what's at the problems of black communities is the breaking down of the black family with a mother and a father. And it's just very patriarchal. And I'm like, this, this is nuts. Um, because you don't need a man and a woman to, to a mother and a father to appropriately raise a child. You need a healthy family environment. Right. Right. Um, and, 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 a safe and sustainable community to raise that child. So I just, it, it, it is frustrating, but I also understand that this is where these individuals who have expressed this are. So you meet them where they are and you try to get them to, to where we'd like them to be. Um, additionally, whew, mass incarceration of the black man and the things that happen in jails. Uh, when it comes to homosexuality, I've worked with reentry uh, populations and it's very difficult when you're not given an appropriate education around sexuality to differentiate what intimacy is mm -hmm. uh, and separate intimacy so that loving that caring that supportive from a, a, a genital act of sex right I've seen that quite a bit in some of the work that I've done so it's, again, this is a learning process. We're all learning and right. it takes empathy. And I think empathy is, empathy is really hard when you're, I would imagine, because I'm not, a cisgendered heteronormative black man who's just worried about being a black man in America. It's, sure. it's, it's very, I think it's challenging to process, okay, I'm worried about just walking down the street as a black man. I don't really have the capacity, the mental capacity to process what that means for a black man. I've even had black men tell me, well, you know, black gays and black trans folk aren't really seen by the police because they're not seen as a threat. I mean, statements like that speak volumes to some of the challenges we're seeing in finding equitable space in the BLM movement for all these different identities. Right. right. Um, well, you have given me so much food for thought and I am so appreciative of everything that you've shared and all of the resources, um, which we will include. How can people find you, um, find information, how to connect with you? Yeah. So you can follow me on all social media, which is at MH Sexpert. Um, and, you know, if you turn your notifications on, I do twice weekly kind of when things are not super crazy. I do twice weekly um, a, a live learning lesson. So on Tuesdays, it's called Just the Tip Tuesdays. And on Fridays, it's Lunchbox Lessons. And I just do it live through uh, Instagram. And then I post it on my YouTube page, my website, www.mhsexpert.com. 
and I hope to see all of you hanging around, DMing me questions. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm so grateful again for your time and uh, for all your knowledge. And um, thank you. No problem. No problem. Woohoo! That was so. Oh my god. I I I can't quite tell you how impactful and incredible uh, both the interviews that I did with Michelle um, were. But I. I hope that you all enjoyed that because I learned a tremendous amount. Yeah, it, it, I remember listening through the first one where there were some audio issues and just uh, being floored by everything that she was saying. Like it was like one thing after another. It was like, wow, oh my god, what have I not been paying attention to? So I uh, hopefully yeah. that you guys can can relate to that. Um, so super, thank you, Michelle, for coming on and kind of helping enlighten and educate us that way. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I'm just so grateful, and and you know, it, it the burden does not fall on black people to educate us white people. And any time that anybody is willing to come on and do that labor and spend time with me, I am overwhelmingly grateful, and I understand um, what a gift it is. So so thank you again. Uh, please find her on Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook at mhsexpert. Uh, also, her website is mhsexpert.com. Um, and then we will have um, the links in the show notes. But it, just to reiterate, if you're interested in, you know, reproductive justice and the history, sistersong.org. Uh, also, intersectionality. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw pioneered that. So um, we'll put some links, but you can look her up and um, get more information. And then, as always, uh, we would love for you to rate, subscribe, um, and tell your friends about us. Uh, yeah, and uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And this time, tell 173 people about us because these are important. It's an important episode. Important yeah. episodes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. I. Yeah. And 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 obviously, as we said at the top. Uh, we do want to make a push to have more diverse people on. And so, um, you know, obviously we'll be doing a lot of outreach, but uh, feel free if you're listening and you and you want to speak to your truth, uh, reach out to us. You know, you can do that on social media, Finding My Yum, um, on Facebook and Instagram, right? It's Finding My Yum. Finding My Yum podcast. Podcast. I always get them flipped up. <laughs> we haven't done Gmail it Gmail is Finding long. My Yum at <laughs> gmail.com. <laughs> uh, but yes, please reach out. We would love to, to share your story on here too. And next week, we're super excited to have Nina Joyner. They own a, a sex shop called Feel More Adult in both Oakland and Berkeley. And they're the only black AFAB sex shop in those communities. And their story is amazing. So we can't wait to release that and uh, get to share their story on this platform. So get excited for that. And yeah. Stay yummy!